This is the word of the Lord here from Leviticus chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, when someone sins and offends the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in regard to the deposit, a security, or a robbery, or defrauds his neighbor, or finds something lost and lies about it, or swears falsely about any of the sinful things a person may do, once he has sinned and acknowledged his guilt, he must return what he stole or defrauded, or the deposit entrusted to him, or the lost item he found, or anything else about which he swore falsely. He will make full restitution for it and add a fifth of its value to it. He is to pay it to its owner on the day he acknowledges his guilt. Then he is to bring his guilt offering to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock, according to your assessment of its value as a guilt offering to the priest. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for anything he may have done to incur guilt. Good morning, church family. You guys good? Enjoying this beautiful spring weather we're having still? How many of you got woken up by the thunder on Friday morning? That was wild. Felt like, uh, I don't know, it was like in Texas or something, and I was like, no, I just work with one. So, uh, if you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we as a church are going through the book of Leviticus together. I want to just give you two quick little updates before we dive in. First of all, we're going to spend the rest of June in Leviticus. We're going to take a little break in July and do some psalms for the month of July and then pick back up Leviticus for the fall and kind of finish it out. And speaking of Leviticus, which is one of the five books of Moses, one of the five books of the Torah, today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is a day that is set aside uh, both in the Jewish and the Christian tradition to remember first uh, what's known as Shavuot in the Jewish tradition. It is the day that we commemorate the Lord gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so we have the book of Leviticus, we have the Torah because of this incredible gift of God to Moses, to his people on Mount Sinai. When you fast forward after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all of the disciples were gathered for the feast of Shavuot in the temple courtyards, and the Lord sent his Holy Spirit in a remarkable and a special and unique sort of way. Uh, You guys might remember the story in Acts chapter 2. They start speaking in various languages so that all these Jewish people who had gathered for the feast of Shavuot could hear the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection proclaimed in their own language and the, the, the Jesus movement was officially birthed. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, we remember the Lord gave his word to Moses and he gave his spirit to his people and we are grateful for both, amen? You know, some churches try to be a very like word-centered church where it's all about the Bible. Other churches tend to be a very spirit-centered church where it's all about the communing with God and the enjoyment of God. And by his grace, we endeavor to be a both-and type of church. There should be no conflict between the spirit of God and the scriptures that he inspired to be authored. Can I get an amen from anybody in the church today? So that's by way of introduction. Let's pray, and we're going to dive. Actually, real quick, I do have more to say before I start preaching. Um, <clears throat> Today, in the book of Leviticus, we are wrapping up the five offerings, the five sacrifices. And so I just want to review them real briefly, because to talk about the fifth one today, uh, I need to be able to make reference to some of the earlier ones. So you might remember that the first one was known as the burnt offering. And the burnt offering really is this idea of wholehearted devotion to God. 
In the burnt offering, the entire sacrifice is consumed by the fire. No one shares any of the meat. No one eats any of it together. It all goes to God. And so we know that when we devote our lives to the Lord 100%, that is the way that we live out the burnt offering. The second one is the grain offering or the bread offering. And bread is a symbol of life. And so when, when bread and when grain are offered to the Lord, it's a way of saying, Lord, you give us abundant life. All that we have comes from you. The very life that we have, it's all because of you. Then we looked at the fellowship offering or the peace offering in which the priests and the people and the Lord all come together in this meal of shalom where everything is as it should be and everything is just beautiful and precious and good. And we say, thank you, Lord, that we get to enjoy life together with you. Last week, we looked at the first of the mandatory offerings. Those first three were voluntary. This fourth one is a mandatory one. It's the sin offering, and it's a purification offering that makes it possible for us to come close to God. God is holy, and unholiness cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so the sin offering or the purification offering makes it possible for us to enter near to God's presence. And then the last one today is known as the guilt offering or the repayment or reparation offering. And it has to do with relational reconciliation in God's presence. And I'll unpack what that means here uh, as we go forward. But let's pray together. Lord, we come into your presence right now. Lord, we thank you for the word. Lord, thank you that more than 3,000 years ago, you spoke these words to your servant Moses, who wrote them down for our benefit. What an incredible thing to be a part of that long of a tradition, Lord, that long of a, a, a history and a legacy of faith. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, your spirit that's been at work in creation since the beginning, but poured out uniquely on that day of Pentecost. And Lord, we thank you that your spirit is present with us right now. And spirit, I ask that you would empower me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word. And spirit, I ask that you would give each one of us a soft, teachable, receptive hearts today. That we might look at ourselves, we might look at our relationships, we might look at the situations that we find ourselves in and ask, Lord, where do you want to bring healing and restoration? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I was teaching on the fellowship offering, the shalom, the the meal of peace, the meal of shalom, and just kind of painting that picture of Man, everything is good. You're sitting around the table with friends and family. It's that kind of perfect sort of moment. And later that evening, I got a text from one of our members. BJ texted me, and he said that he was sitting in the, sun, in, in the backyard with his son, Elias. Wave, Elias. There he is. Elias, how old are you now? Eight. So Elias was paying attention. And he said he was, BJ said they were sitting in the backyard. It was one of the like few sunny days we've had in May. They were sitting there in the backyard. They were watching an NBA playoff game. And Elias goes, man, this is some really good shalom right now. I was like, that is the most encouraging thing that anyone could ever say to me as a preacher, that the eight-year-olds are getting it. So good job, Elias. Very encouraging. Just that idea of everything is well, everything is whole, everything is as it should be. So let's talk about the opposite of that today. Let's go to the upside down together. Uh, Sorry, okay. What do you do when it feels like everything is disjointed? What do you do when things are just not in order? 
What do you do when, like, you come home from work and you walk into the house and you see your spouse and you know that there's a conversation that you need to have, but you just kind of don't want to have that conversation? What do you do when you go to work and you see that coworker, that person, that boss, that manager, like, oh, I just, oh. What do you do when you go to the grocery store and you bump into that former friend, that person that you're at odds with? Things are not shalom. Things are not as they should be. You guys know that feeling? You ever had that experience? You walk into a place not expecting to bump into somebody that, man, just the relationship fell apart and you're sitting there with this kind of knot in your stomach. Should I say something? Should I do something? This is what the guilt offering is addressing. Most all of the other offerings are particularly vertically focused. They're focused on the way that we interact with God. But the guilt offering is unique in that, yes, it interacts with God, but it also interacts with the people in our lives and even ourselves. Let me show you what I'm talking about from the text. Leviticus, picking up in chapter 6, sorry, picking up in chapter 5, verse 14. Go back to the middle of chapter 5. This is how it starts. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, If someone offends by sinning unintentionally, in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he must bring his penalty for guilt to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock, based on your assessment of its value in silver shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. They're kind of establishing a currency here. As a guilt offering, he is to make restitution for his sin regarding any holy thing, adding a fifth of its value to it and give it to the priest. Then the priest will make atonement on his behalf with the ram of the guilt offering and will be forgiven. So here's, here's the idea that's happening here. There has been some sort of a relational breach. There's been an offense. Did you notice that word offense? Before the Lord God. It talks about how it, the, the, the holy things of the Lord. In the tabernacle, when they would gather for worship, we have all these sacrifices, right? You're, you're offering a burnt offering of an animal. You're offering a burnt offering of grain or bread. Well, the priests had forks and spoons and knives and shovels and all of these sorts of tools that they would use. Just like any good pit master, you have to have your grill tools, right? You have to have your, 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 your barbecue tools. Now, here in the, 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 the tabernacle of the Lord, there are certain elements that are set aside for special use. We call those holy things or sacred things. They cannot be used for anything else. They're only for used in tabernacle worship. And so it's a little bit unclear. It's a little bit vague here. But somehow, someone messed up and misused the tools of the Lord. And now, they're no longer good for worship in the tabernacle. And so the idea is, well, you need to pay back what that tool was worth. You need to also pay an additional one-fifth, an additional 20%. And then you also offer a ram to the Lord as a way to say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I wasn't, I wasn't careful with the, the, the implements of temple worship. 
This is not a good analogy, but most of mine aren't. So, you know, the idea would be like you come to church and, and you're, 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 you lose control of your kid for a second. It comes over, it knocks over this expensive keyboard, it crashes to the ground, and you say, my goodness, that is useless. It's ruined now. We can't use it anymore for worship. Let me pay and let me buy a new one and let me throw an extra 20% on there just as a, a, a way of doing that. And then, uh, and then you... I don't know, go out in the parking lot and sacrifice a ram to say sorry. I don't know, it's like it's that kind of a thing, right? But there's been some sort of a unintentional, you saw the word unintentional, but there's been some sort of a relational breach with the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry that I wasn't careful with your dwelling place. Let me pay back what is owed. Let me pay a little bit extra. And then let me also offer a sacrifice as a way to say, I'm sorry. And the Lord says, you'll be forgiven. Jump ahead with me to chapter 6, verse 1. This is what we just heard in our scripture reading. So that was a situation where things are not right with God. Here's one where things are not right with your neighbor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. When someone sins and offends the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, isn't it interesting? You've offended the Lord by sinning against your neighbor. That's worth noting. In regard to a deposit, a security, some sort of financial matter, right? Or a robbery, or defrauds his neighbor, or finds something lost and, and pulls the old uh, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? Finds something lost and lies about it, or basically swears falsely about any of the sinful things a person may do. That's pretty sweeping. Just anything wrong and you just said no. Once a person has sinned but acknowledged his guilt, he must return what he stole or defrauded, or the deposit entrusted to him, or the lost item he found, or anything else about which he swore falsely, he will, here it is, listen, make full restitution for it, and add a fifth of its value. There's the same exact thing when you sin against a person, as opposed to sinning against God. It's pay back what you owe, but add this one-fifth, add this 20%. I'm sorry that I did this. He is to pay it to its owner on the day, like right then, the day that he acknowledges his guilt. Don't delay. And then he's to go to the tabernacle, bring a guilt offering to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock, according to your assessment of its value as a guilt offering to the priest. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his behalf before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for anything he may have done to incur guilt. So it's the same thing. If you have wronged the Lord with his holy dwelling place, Pay back what you owe, add the 20%, offer a sacrifice. If you've sinned against your neighbor, you've lied, you've stolen, you've done something wrong, pay back what you owe, add 20%, and then offer a sacrifice. I do think it's a key thing to note here that it's the one who acknowledges his guilt. You have to acknowledge, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and go to that person. Now, there's one other situation that's kind of tucked in the middle there. We, we skipped over it. I want to come back to it. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 5. When there's been a breach with the Lord, when there's been a breach with the neighbor, this is kind of like an internal breach. Something is not right within self. Look at what it says in verse 17. If someone sins and without knowing it violates any of the Lord's commands concerning anything prohibited, he is guilty and he will bear his iniquity. He must bring an unblemished ram from the flock according to your assessment of its value as a guilt offering to the priest. Then the priest will make atonement on his behalf for the error he has committed unintentionally and he will be forgiven. 
He is indeed guilty before the Lord. Now, <laughs> there's a, there's, this section here is kind of vague, is it not? What did the person do? What am I supposed to do? What, what am I supposed to offer? How am I, like, what is it that I did wrong? The phrase at the very beginning of verse 17 says, if someone sins without knowing it, violates any of the Lord's commands concerning anything prohibited, he is guilty. That word in the Hebrew is very vague. It could talk about like kind of bearing your guilt, like a feeling of guilt, or it could talk about experiencing the consequences of some sort, but nowhere in that passage is it made clear what the person did wrong. You you, you have just this sense of, I've messed up, I feel guilty, or I'm experiencing some consequences. I don't exactly know why. What do I do? Anyone ever had that feeling? You ever just had the feeling like, ah, something is off, but I don't even really know what. Jay Sklar, who's a biblical scholar, he writes, and he's very helpful in this. He says, there are two different understandings of this law. In the first, sinners do not know that they have sinned, but then they learn of their wrongdoing and deal with it properly. This approach is possible, although it's not clear then why repayment would not be mentioned. Like if you find out what you did wrong, you should go pay it back. He says the second understanding though, which he advocates for more likely, sinners suspect that they have sinned, but they never learn what the sin is. And this is the standard rabbinic approach and is followed by many commentators. It has the advantage of explaining why this case does not mention repayment. The sinner never learns what the sin is and therefore does not know what the repayment should be. It also fits well with the fact that Israelites were fearful of inadvertently committing sins that remain unknown, a fear common to others in the ancient Near Eastern world. This law would help address that fear. A natural question then arises. How do sinners know to bring a sacrifice if they don't know what their sin is? The understanding of that root, sham, which I mentioned earlier, that one Hebrew word, presented earlier, provides the answer. They experience some type of misfortune. They conclude that they must be suffering guilt's consequences. Verses 17b through 18a are, in fact, best translated. Here's his translation. And he does not know what he has done, but suffers guilt's consequences and bears his punishment Then he will bring to the priest as a reparation offering a ram from the flock. In short, here's the summary. The person has sinned, but is unaware of what the sin is. The sinner therefore assumes the worst. Maybe I profaned a holy item and brings a costly reparation offering for the atonement and forgiveness. Here's the the thing I want you to take away from this. Sometimes in life, we might experience misfortune We might experience negative consequences. We might experience some hardship or difficulty. That does not mean automatically that you or I are guilty of sin. But it is one of the possibilities that we should ask ourselves and ask the Lord about. Think about in the book of James when it talks about someone who's sick should call for the elders of the church to come anoint them with oil and pray over them. And it says, and if he has sinned, that sick person will be forgiven. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6, that people are misusing the Lord's table. They're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And he says, that's why some of you have gotten sick and even some of you have fallen dead. They didn't didn't take communion seriously enough and some people have died because of it. Listen, hear me on this. There's an overstating of like, anytime you experience hardship, well, you're sinning, you must be sinning. Maybe. Maybe not. 
Sometimes you might be experiencing suffering because someone else sinned. Sometimes you might be experiencing suffering because we just live in a fallen, broken world that's all messed up. But sometimes we experience hardship, we experience consequences, we experience this struggle, and it's because we are operating out of sin that maybe we weren't aware of. When you're in that place, we are invited to say, Lord, is there any sin that I'm just not aware of? Is there anything that's just been hidden to me? Is there anything I've just been ignorant of? Lord, would you want to show me? I've sat with people in my office as a pastor many, many times. And they're going through some hardship or something like that, or I'm going to pray over them for for, uh, healing. And and one of the questions I'll ask sometimes is, hey, is there anything you need to just confess before the Lord? And sometimes I'll say, yeah, there is this thing I've been holding on to. Other times I'll say, man, I have prayed, I've asked. There's nothing I'm aware of. Awesome, praise the Lord. Let's move on. But the idea here is that this guilt offering is given sometimes when we feel like our relationship with God is off, sometimes when the relationship with someone else is off, and sometimes when the relationship even within ourself is off. This offering, the guilt offering or the repayment offering, is given as a way to move back towards wholeness and shalom. I want to point out three things about this idea, okay? Three things. If you're taking notes, three. You can keep up with that, okay? The first one is this. This passage teaches us that relationship with God is inseparable from relationship with others. If you have sinned against someone else, this passage says that that sin against someone else offends the Lord. Uh, If I could... Put it in my own terms, it's that when we sin against one another, the Lord takes it personally. Think about how many places in the Bible this principle is shown. I think of, I think of verses like Proverbs 19, 7, where it says, whoever is generous to the poor gives to the Lord. The way that we treat the poor is a direct reflection of how we treat the Lord. I think of Jesus saying almost something identical in Matthew chapter 25. He says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do unto me. Think of Jesus' uh, disciple John in 1 John saying, how can you say you love God, but you treat your brother so poorly? That doesn't match up. The way that we treat other people is a direct uh, reflection. It's It's intertwined with, it's inseparable from how we treat our God. So when we sin, when we mess up, we need to consider both the vertical and the horizontal angles. Lord, how has my sin broken your heart? How has my sin grieved you? And then, Lord, how has my sin affected the people in my life? Relationship with God and relationship with others, you just can't separate them. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you as a church community, we need to live in intentional relationships with one another where we come together and say, I'm in your life, you're in my life. We're going to love each other well. When we sin against one another, we're going to confess and repent and we're going to forgive each other because all of that horizontal relationship is in fact one of the ways that we worship and honor God. It's why we, every stinking Sunday, we say, get, com- get plugged into a community group. Get plugged into biblical community. Start serving. Get people in your life. The Christian life is not a solo venture. We are meant to love God by loving one another. You tracking with me? 
That's the first one. Second one is this. Repentance and restitution go together wherever possible. True repentance is costly. True repentance is costly. Pay back what you, what you wronged and another 20%. I love that the Bible's so specific about this. It's just very easy. That's easy math. It's so easy, I can do it, okay? It's 10% times two. It's actually like tipping, right? Tipping at a restaurant. I can most of the time do that math. Unless it's like too late and I'm out past my bedtime or something, right? 20% above and beyond. Sin causes this mess. And there's a, a, a debt to be repaid. And here, Leviticus, uh, the, 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 the guilt offering is telling us, we're not doing some cheap, like, oh, well, I'm sorry, God forgives me, and kind of move on. In, in my parenting, I've tried to teach my children that when they have sinned against one another or hurt one another, and one kid comes to the other and says, I'm sorry, the other kid is not allowed to, in our house, say, it's fine, or it's okay. Because... If the sin was real and the offense was real, it is, in fact, not okay. It is not okay that you sinned against your sibling in that way. Instead, say, I am sorry. I forgive you. That's a lot better. There's kind of a, a, a cheap, almost like avoidance that sometimes masquerades as, you know, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. It's like, oh, you know, hey, you know. It's, like, it's kind of like the stereotypical dude thing, right? This is like a dude thing, like, hey, you know. Yeah, it's cool. You know, like, it's just that, it's kind of like that level, right? Followers of God can look each other in the eye and say, I did this, I am sorry. Let me pay back what I've owed. Let me, let me cover whatever is broken. Let me do something to, to, to show you my sorrow. By the way, by the way, if you think repentance is expensive, try not repenting. In Exodus chapter 22... That's right. Exodus chapter 22, it says that if someone does all these same things, robs, defrauds, lies about, the penalty is payback double. Not 20%, double. So what's the difference? Acknowledging the guilt and repenting. So in Exodus, it's like you didn't repent, you didn't acknowledge what you did, you get caught. Well, guess what? Now you're on the hook for 200%. So yeah, repentance feels costly, not repenting, not owning your sin is way more costly. Not just from a financial repayment sense, but I believe that Leviticus and Exodus are trying to teach us something about spiritually what's at, what's at play here as well. Repentance and restitution go together wherever possible. Now, what if in this wherever possible, maybe, maybe the sin wasn't something of a financial nature. It wasn't something that was so tangible, so practical. You've, you've tried your best. You've apologized. You've said sorry. Well, then what? What do you do? And this leads me to the third point that I want to make today, which is this. Human efforts to repay will always fall short. So we just have to trust in God's grace. I think about this like, does 20% really make it better? Does it really make it better? Um, let's say someone stole your lawnmower. It's hopefully not as touchy of a subject. I was thinking of some other ones, but we're going to stick with lawnmower, okay? What's a new lawnmower cost? 
500 bucks for a good one or something. They stole it from you. They lied. You said, I know you stole it. No, I didn't steal it from you. Meanwhile, your grass is growing really long. That invites, like, all the vermin in the neighborhood to move in. And the moles start, like, you know how moles are. Like, they start making those, what are they called? Mole hills. And you got your yards all messed up. And, like, I can't mow my lawn. And meanwhile, you're, like, having to take time off of work to go, like, drive over to your buddy's house to borrow the lawnmower. And then, I mean, you had to go drive to your buddy's house, but he lives like way far on the other side of town, and gas is not cheap right now. I don't know if you know this. And you're, you're like, okay, this whole situation is just really messed up. And finally, the person comes and says, look, I'm sorry I did. I stole your lawnmower. Here's the lawnmower, and here's, you know, an extra hundred bucks. Like, why well, spend a hundred bucks just on the gas alone to get to my buddy's house to borrow it? Does it, really, does it really fix the whole thing? That's what I'm asking. Does it really seem like 20% is adequate? I don't think so. I think that the 20% is meant to be representative of, you got to do something to, to go above and beyond to make it right. But in the end, every human effort to repay will always be short because we can't really, uh, as finite creatures, undo the spiritual and the relational damage that is done by our sin. Which is why we have to trust in God's grace. Roy Gain, who's another author and biblical scholar, he says this, he says, the best Human efforts to fix problems caused by moral faults are inadequate. In relation, or sorry, in addition to the other liabilities we incur, whether to God or human beings, the historical fact of relational damage or sin creates an additional kind of debt that must be paid by sacrifice, even when we discharge our earthly responsibility to make wrongs right as best we can. We can never come up with enough to pay this debt. All we can give are tokens, which is what the ancient animal sacrifices were. If anyone ever had that feeling, like I've tried my best to make it right with this person, but it just still feels like something is missing. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I still can't, I can't pay it enough. Which is why the Lord said, well, then there must be a sacrifice that the priest is involved in because in that sacrifice, we're saying, God, I'm entrusting my guilt to you. Which is why the news of the gospel, friends, is so good. Because Jesus becomes for us the ultimate guilt offering. It's interesting to think about Jesus. He's both God and man, is he not? I said a moment ago that, that the way that we interact with humans is the way that we interact with God, and nowhere is this more present than the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Jesus comes, divinity, the fullness of God, not 50% God and 50% man, 100% God and 100% man. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. He's God. But I know this. That because he is both God and man, he can offer us the most costly forgiveness that was ever offered. A forgiveness that was paid for by his perfect sacrifice. Like a lamb without any blemish or spot. He gives us costly forgiveness. And Jesus covers that debt that we could never repay. No matter how hard you worked to make it right before God and to make it right before man, our efforts still fall short. And so Jesus' death is a debt payment like we just sang about a moment ago. He paid it all. 
The whole thing is forgiven. The whole thing is taken care of. And because of that, Jesus invites us into a costly repentance. Jesus said, I have died for you. I have risen again to offer you new life, to give you my Holy Spirit. Now I invite you to die with me. Die to yourself. Die to your ego. Die to your pocketbook. Die to all of those things that you would hold on to and that you would cling to and say, Lord, if you have died for me, I can die to myself and my ego and I can repent before you. I can repent before others. Friends, if Jesus died and rose again, we are so free to live in repentance. Amen? Do you believe that? I know that in the moment, sometimes I don't believe it. It feels too costly. It feels too expensive. But if Jesus died in our place for our sins, then we get to walk in this beautiful, costly repentance. Jesus also restores our guilty consciences. He, he, he cleanses us of those things that maybe even we don't even remember that we did or we, we don't know what we did or you, you're the kind of person, maybe you have a more sensitive conscience and you, you've, you've repented before the Lord and you've tried to make it right with the person, but sometimes at night you still just kind of beat yourself up a little bit. Jesus comes in and says, your conscience is washed clean because of my sacrifice. You don't need to sit there and beat yourself up. Jesus was beaten for you. Jesus was crucified for you. You don't need to crucify yourself. Your conscience can actually be clean before the Lord. Friends, do you believe this? That this is the hope of the gospel, that not only are you objectively forgiven before God, but that you can have that internal sense of peace because of what he has done for you. And lastly, Jesus then commands us to make things right, if at all possible. Jesus himself spoke of the guilt offering when he said, if you come to offer your gift and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your altar at the gift, go be reconciled first, and then come back to worship. This is Jesus teaching and speaking of this guilt offering right here from Leviticus chapters 5 and 6. Roy Gaines says it really well. He says this, Forgiveness through Christ is not a cheap grace way to declare bankruptcy on our obligations to other people. So Jesus comes. He pays the debt. He offers us ultimate forgiveness. And then he says, Now we're going to walk this out. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to wash your conscience clean. But it's also going to be challenging. Has anyone ever had that experience of having to repent to someone else and it just feels like, man, I, my, my ego just shriveled up and died? Anyone have that experience? Anyone? Any parents here ever had to like get down on one knee and apologize to like a, like a 42-pound little kid? Like, dad was wrong. I am so sorry. Nothing quite so humbling as that experience. Dads, Look your kids in the eye and say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Model repentance in the house. Teachers, leaders, managers, bosses, any sort of position of influence, model that and follow Jesus as he says, we can make this right. So I want to close with a few questions for meditation and reflection. 
And actually, before we go back to the Lord's table and start singing again, I just want to invite us to a little bit of a time of reflection. So let me ask you a few questions as we seek to live out the principles behind the guilt offering for us today. So I have a couple of questions. I'm just going to ask these questions and, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your own life wherever is most appropriate, okay? First question is this. Where have you offended God? And as you ask yourself that question, I want to remind you that Jesus stands ready to forgive. His arms extended, his heart full of love. He already knew the sin before he went to the cross. But have you allowed yourself to just pause? Where have you sinned against God? Where have you wronged God? Second question to reflect on. Who, at the human level, have you wronged? Who have you sinned against? I would remind you that Jesus' forgiveness then compels you to make repayment. The Apostle Paul says, I think it's in Romans 16, he says, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We can acknowledge there are some situations where you've tried your best, you've done everything, you've done more than the 20%, and that person's just not willing or able to forgive right now. But, pause and reflect. Who might you need to go make it right with? Third question for reflection. Is your conscience guilty? Something keeping you up at night? I want to remind you that all your sin is covered by his grace. You've been washed clean. That guilty conscience does not need to have any more power over you because of what Jesus has done for us. And it all starts with what we just saw here in Leviticus 6. Acknowledge his guilt. So we're going to have some time to reflect and some time to pray before we come to the Lord's table. I'm actually going to invite musicians to come and Pastor Jamin to come lead us. And I want to read one closing prayer from Psalm 19. And I'm going to read this slowly. I'm going to read this prayerfully. And we'll just transition right into our time of reflection for communion as Pastor Jamin leads us in that way. These are the words of David as he's examining both the things on purpose and the things unintentional, as we just read about. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults, Lord. And moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from my blatant rebellion. If you want to, maybe say these words with me out loud. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate guilt offering, that you died to make relationship with our Heavenly Father restored, to make reconciliation with our fellow humans restored, and even, Lord, to bring reconciliation within our own guilty hearts and consciences.
And Lord, I pray for each one of us right now to reflect on the effects of our sin, the ways that our sins have caused disruption to shalom, to, well, to wholeness, to well-being. And Lord, I ask that we would all bring our hearts into your presence now as we prepare to eat and drink at the Lord's table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.